0: what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country You're listening to Oh Brother When Art Thou and now here's your host Neil White
1: Welcome to Oh Brother When Art Thou I'm Neil White joined as always by my brother David and Merry Christmas David it's the season of giving the season of joy and uh, just a fun time to be around how you doing I'm doing pretty good, Neil. Getting some Christmas shopping done this week. Okay, yeah, that's the not-so-fun part of Christmas, (laughs) is getting all the shopping done and the chores. But once we get to Christmas, it's pretty great. Do you have a, a gift for us in the form of a podcast, David? I suppose I could
0: generously provide you with a podcast, Neil.
1: All right, in that case, I'll ask you the question that I always ask you to start these things off Oh brother, when art thou?
0: Neil, it's the 1st of February, 1713, and in the small town of Bender in modern-day Moldova, where Karl XII, king of Sweden, has temporarily established his court, he is fighting for his life against an angry army of Turkish janissaries.
1: Uh-oh, this doesn't sound good for Karl XII. Maybe let's back it up a bit. What is Karl doing in Moldova? It seems like a bit of a ways from his home territory. So this is a big question.
0: It doesn't sound like one, but what has brought Karl XII to Bender is essentially his entire reign. I would have to go back to the very start of his rule as King of Sweden to tell you what has brought him here. So let's do that. All
1: right then, let's go back
0: to the start of his reign. All right. So in 1697, Carl was the heir apparent to the throne of Sweden and his father had tragically died some years earlier and there'd been a regent, a regency in Sweden ruling for him while he was underaged which he was at the time he was 15 actually and there was a political crisis surrounding the regency essentially a classic dispute over who got to be the regent and the swedish senate came to a unusual compromise they decided they just let him ascend to the throne early.
1: Hey, a good deal for him, I guess. Uh, so he's only 15 years old, and he's going to get to be the king of Sweden. Exactly. So how does it work out for him, David? Uh, is, it, is 15 too young to become the king of Sweden? You would think so, but actually, he does remarkably well. He
0: becomes the king. He makes big changes and shows real signs of a strong and determined personality even at that young age, making political decisions in Sweden, making contacts in countries throughout Europe. Generally things are not actually going that badly for him.
1: Well David we're seeing a lot of people uh, talking about youth and whether the voting age should be lowered and you're seeing youth get involved in all sorts of political causes these days. I guess it has some historical precedent with our 15-year-old King Karl. But unfortunately, being so young makes him look weak,
0: whether or not that's accurate. And the Swedish Empire has a history at this point. They were actually one of the most powerful countries in Europe, which can be easy to forget for those of us in English-speaking countries today, since it wasn't a history that impinge too much on England specifically, but Sweden had been a very powerful, very aggressive power for decades by this point.
1: It's not just all Ikea meatballs.
0: Not at all. And the one thing that that had created for them as empires tend to create was enemies. So with a young king on the throne and a long and bitter enmity with a variety of their neighbors
1: there was trouble in the air. So who was coming for his throne? Who thought that they could overthrow this young king? So there are three primary
0: countries that were unhappy with Sweden's dominant position in northern Europe at the time and wanted to change it. There's Denmark-Norway, which was one country at the time, Poland-Saxony-Lithuania, also one country at the time, and Russia, the biggest and most powerful of the immediate enemies of Sweden.
1: So does young Karl have a plan to deal with these countries? Is he going to have to act aggressively to show them that he's not as weak as they think? on the contrary in 1699 when he's just
0: 17 these three countries will form an alliance and strike first that's not good definitely not good for Carl No. but the one thing is as well as having enemies the other thing that Carl has inherited from the Swedish imperial past is an excellent top-of-the-line army, quite possibly the best man-for-man in Europe, and he'll lead them boldly. At the very beginning of the war, he orders a crossing of the strait between Denmark and Sweden, which all of the most experienced seafarers he has available claimed was impossible but by boldly crossing in winter, he's able to strike at Copenhagen unexpectedly. He can't quite seize the Danish capital, but he convinces Denmark-Norway to plead for peace. And once he's driven them out of the war, he launches an offensive against Poland.
1: And so does his offensive against Poland go as well as the one against Denmark? The war in Poland is bitter, slow
0: and ugly occupying small towns the Polish army can't stand up to Charles's better trained Swedes in straight-up fights but the Polish people are unwilling to surrender there's a long and ugly period here where the Swedes are winning but it's costing them both troops and also it is an incredibly bitter war
1: They're not winning any hearts and minds. They're definitely not
0: winning hearts and minds. And the Russians decide to take this advantage to try and sweep in quickly and crush his army while it's bogged down in Poland. So what year are we up to now, David? So we're up to 1704. The Swedes are bogged down in Poland. There's a Russian army coming with the plan of crushing them for good. And... It outnumbers the entire Swedish army is outnumbered by three to one.
1: Those are not good odds at all, but you did say that the Swedes were very good soldiers and and really good at this. So what happens, David? Do they meet in open battle? They meet
0: in open battle and the Swedes are able to use their traditional advantages of rapid movement and flanking maneuvers to confuse the Russian troops. And defeat them in detail it's a spectacular victory it makes Karl's name not just in northern Europe but across Europe suddenly he's very important not just in his ongoing war but in the broader politics of Europe at this time there's major tensions and small wars breaking out between the other powers of Europe and several countries are sending major diplomatic missions trying to tempt him into being willing to intervene in their own conflicts because he's getting a reputation as a military genius. But Carl wants to end this war before he moves on to fighting one for anybody else.
1: That's a good lesson that uh, many other leaders could have learned to finish one war before you start the next is he able to beat the sides that he's fighting now he's able to beat poland
0: poland was an elective monarchy at the time they elected their king they weren't supposed to do it until the previous king had died under the polish constitution but after he seized warsaw charles rather forced them to have a election had them elect somebody who he approved of and thereby gain control of Poland. Now immediately after the massive victory that he'd won over the Russians, the Russians had actually contacted Karl and offered him peace terms, but he wasn't willing to agree to the peace terms that they had set out. So his war with Russia, in theory, was still continuing. Although At this point, it's 1709, five years later, and all five of those years have been spent in Poland. So now, Karl needs to come up with a way to convince the Russians to sign a peace deal on his terms.
1: Well, he's already won one big victory against them. Is he going to go to war against them again here? Absolutely. He's
0: got big plans. He's secretly been in contact with some discontented elements amongst the Ukrainian Cossacks in the Russian Empire. Now the Cossacks traditionally were the free peasants who were allowed to have more freedom than was standard in the Russian Empire in return for living in the borderlands between Russia and their traditional enemies Turkey. But as the Russian army professionalized, there was less need for these unofficial cavalry bands that the Cossacks were, which was why they had these extra freedoms. So there had been a gradual curtailment of their privileges over time. So the Cossacks weren't happy.
1: And Carl's going to take advantage of that.
0: Karl wants to encourage a major Cossack revolt and then at the same time take his army, march on Moscow, seize it, and dictate terms. That's his plan. Can he do it?
1: Sounds like a pretty good plan to me, David. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, so this sounds like he's got a good chance here.
0: Well, the downside is the Cossacks are being replaced. That's why they're unhappy, but the reason that they're being replaced is because the professionalized Russian army is better at fighting than they are. The Cossack Rebellion starts as planned. Carl's armies march into Russia as planned. And then the Cossack Rebellion gets crushed.
1: Oh, So that part of the plan didn't work out quite as Carl had hoped. Is he able to continue his offensive? He is. He marches on Moscow. He's pushing his troops as fast
0: as they can go, marching through Russia. They have their first engagement with Tsar Peter's troops and then several more and each time they're winning victories cutting their way through but at the same time as they penetrate into Russia they're rapidly learning that the traditional living off the land tactics that all armies in this period used work much less well when you're trying to live off the land in Russia which is not agriculturally a particularly lush country at the best of times and especially not when your enemy is willing to use scorched earth tactics to try and starve your armies as they advance.
1: Well, David, it's only the 1700s, but I know that there are a few more generals throughout history who are going to learn some hard lessons about land wars in Russia. Is Karl destined for the same fate?
0: Well, there's going to be some twists in Karl's war in Russia. Let's put it that way. So he wins his initial battles some magnificent victories, again, famous victories, but his supply train gets ambushed and destroyed at roughly the same time and various smaller groups of his army start getting picked off by Russian troops who are tracking them but there's just very little that he can do other than push on and hope for the best unfortunately for him the best doesn't happen instead One of the coldest winters in human memory in almost a century in Europe starts and his troops start to freeze.
1: Oh, geez, Dave, it's it's cold outside here, you know, as we get to Christmas time. So I can sympathize with these guys out in the cold. That just seems like bad luck for Carl to hit the worst winter in memory. It is.
0: It's spectacularly bad luck. The descriptions that the Swedish officers have left us of this winter, they say that as early as November, wine, alcohol left outside was freezing, not just water. They say that they saw birds flying, literally die in the air, which is not actually something that can happen from deep cold, but tells you how they're trying to express the fact that it was cold, very cold.
1: Yeah, frozen wine, that's that's no good. I want my wine to be drinkable still. So does this put an end to Karl's offensive? No, he presses on towards Moscow. He simply doesn't
0: have, or feels he doesn't have, other options at this point. He can't stand still, he's not willing to retreat, so he presses on and he reaches a small village called Poltava. And here the Russians have fortified the river crossing that he'll have to make if he continues on his straight line towards Moscow. Karl himself is sick and has been wounded in a minor action. The troops are running low on practically everything. He's not willing to try another detour to try and get around them. So the famous battle of Poltava is fought. The Swedes trying to charge across the river and through a russian series of fortifications the russians trying to hold their three redoubts on their side of the river and just hold on the battle rages all day the swedes fight their way into the central redan in the russian position and are fighting bitterly hand-to-hand to try and drive out the last of the Russian defenders when the Russian general finally throws in his last reserve Tsar Peter's personal guard and drives the Swedes out at the end of the day the Swedes are back on their side of the river thousands of their troops have died and the rest simply can't go on The invasion has failed.
1: So Carl has finally suffered a major military defeat. Does this bring us towards the end of our story, David?
0: We're certainly getting a lot closer, but there's time for the twist that I promised you. Oh good, I always like a twist. Carl needs to decide, Neil, what to do now that his army's been defeated. He's not going to take Moscow
1: as planned. Right. So does he now have a plan B now that it's been forced upon him? He needs a plan B. His officers are
0: mostly discussing options to try and retreat to Sweden. And that does not look good, both in terms of, at best, it's just escape. And also, it looks unlikely to happen, at least for the entirety of the army. So Carl does come up with a plan B. A bold plan B. He'll take the light cavalry, the fastest troops in his army, those of them who still have horses, and he'll rush not back home to Sweden, not to the Cossacks who tried to rise in revolt but failed, but to the old enemy of the Cossacks. Charles
1: is heading to Turkey. So he's gonna go now recruit another enemy of his enemy the turks to help him
0: that's the plan he is heading to turkey to try and convince the sultan to declare war on russia make Karl his general and let him have another crack at beating the russians because his first effort didn't go so great and the actual army he left behind the bulk of the swedish infantry are eventually surrounded and forced to surrender by the superior russian numbers but by the time that happens they've already spent quite enough time as a distraction for him and his elite cavalry to escape and reach the border of the russian empire of the or of the ottoman empire sorry And the border of the Ottoman Empire at this time was in what
1: is now modern-day Moldova at the town of Bender. So, David, what's the Turkish reception to having this Swedish king show up asking them to declare war on Russia? Well, in the immediate term, mostly confusion. The local
0: officials at Bender are certainly willing to let a group of enemies of the Russians who are after all well-armed troops show up and stay at their border fortress because their border fortress is designed to stop the Russians this seems like a reasonable way to get some extra troops but when the message of their arrival is sent on to Istanbul certainly the Turkish court is both surprised and not entirely certain of what they can do, or should do, in this situation. But Karl is a surprisingly persuasive man.
1: As the Swedes tend to be.
0: So in 1711, he convinces the Sultan of Turkey to declare
1: war on Russia. So he gets his way and does he now have another army to try again? No, he doesn't.
0: Uh, The Turks are willing to declare war on Russia, they certainly hate the Russians, but they view him as a foreigner who knows nothing about their army, which is not entirely incorrect, so they put their usual generals, Turkish generals, at the head of their troops, fight a brief war against the Russians, which the Russians actually lose, but offer good terms quickly to the sultan who's quite pleased and then stop fighting much to Carl's frustration because Sweden isn't getting anything out of minor border adjustments along the Ottoman Russian border
1: Ah, so it works out well for the sultan but not so well for our Swedish hero what are we up to now David plan C is he looking for a plan C He's got a more immediate problem. You see,
0: he's been in Bender now for several years. Uh, He arrived at the tail end of 1709, and it's 1713 now. And he didn't arrive with a lot of money or anything. He had some troops with him, but they're an expense, not a profit center. So he's had to rely a little bit on, you know reaching out to local merchants and trying to make ends meet in innovative ways, especially since the Swedish government back in Sweden has quite a few problems of its own to try and be dealing with, as you can imagine, in the aftermath of a lost war. Right. So he's broke, and he has been broke for a little bit longer than he wants anybody to know.
1: Uh-oh, that's not a good thing. I'm guessing he can't just, uh, declare bankruptcy and start over.
0: No, that is not an option available to him in 18th century Turkey. As the king of Sweden. As the king of Sweden, yes. So what does he do? Well, this brings us to the start of our podcast. The 1st of February, 1713, he's in Bender... The local merchants are angry that they haven't gotten paid. They've been putting pressure on the local government officials to try and collect. The local government officials have been putting pressure on Karl, who's been trying to dance around the situation. And this has all come to a head with the Janissaries, the Turkish infantry stationed at the fortress turning on their Swedish allies and attempting to arrest them and Carl himself is now on the front line reportedly wielding a sword himself as the Janissaries close in.
1: So this is going to get really personal really fast for the king who's probably used to being more of a general but he's going to take up a sword and go fight hand-to-hand against the Turkish army. Indeed. Is he as good a swordsman as he was a general? Well, that depends on
0: whether you believe the Swedish or the Turkish records of the incident. (laughs) That's the way it tends to go, huh? (coughs) But either way, there's enough Turks that eventually the Swedes are forced to surrender and... Carl is sent, now a prisoner, to Istanbul.
1: So how does it all end for Karl XII of Sweden, David?
0: The Turks keep him prisoner for a while. Then they let him go, deciding that there's no point holding him. Then there's a brief period where he tries to convince the Turks to go to war with Russia again. Uh, he does not lack for chutzpah, anyway, but they don't go for that, and meanwhile, the Swedish Senate is sending him increasingly urgent messages asking him to come home and try and resolve a number of the problems that they have ongoing at the time. So in 1719, after a full decade in Turkey, Karl returns to Sweden, reestablishes himself as king, and then, being Karl Twelfth immediately launches a series of military offensives.
1: Can't teach an old dog new tricks, huh, David? He's going to go back to war. Back to war. You see,
0: after Karl lost at Poltava, the Poles rebelled against the king that he had imposed upon them and brought back their previous king and the Danes decided that they were done being out of the war and rejoined the war against Sweden and both had made some territorial gains at the resulting peace conferences. So Karl starts his offensives to drive initially the Danes off of the territory which he views as rightfully Swedish. His first attack is actually successful not due to combat skills there's not a lot of actual fighting in this offensive the Danes were not expecting Charles the 12th to suddenly show up after a decade of being in Turkey and immediately launch an offensive so they didn't have their troops on the border on alert but his name he's still remembered as a military genius in this area they retreat because they know that Carl the 12th is the man who's attacking them and then he continues his war against Denmark by invading Norway, which at this time was part of Denmark. And it's at Frederiksberg Fortress on the border of Norway that he will be run in a siege, reportedly with very disaffected conscripts, who are the only troops that Sweden can still put into the field. When he gets hit by a Norwegian cannonball fired from extreme range just a random shot as you get in sieges, and dies instantly.
1: Wow, nobody can accuse him of having good luck. He uh, ran into the coldest winter, and then he gets hit by a random cannonball, fired, you know, not with the intent of hitting him, just from a long range towards him, and it happens to hit him.
0: For decades afterwards, the Swedes will believe that he was... Murdered by one of his own troops. It was just generally accepted that his troops were so disaffected They must have done it But modern forensic science They've exhumed his body and determined that no it was a cannonball fired from extreme range, which means Almost certainly the Norwegians, but no no one might criticize him not just his luck, but also his decision-making certainly can stand a little criticism as a tendency to using military options when other options were available might be discerned in his in his life
1: so is that the legacy of carl the 12th david is there anything more to this
0: no he's remembered in english he's probably best remembered for a poem by dr johnson the famous poet and dictionary writer but he's remembered as A brilliant military leader who fought a series of increasingly pointless and unwinnable campaigns until eventually he didn't win one.
1: Well, thanks for telling us, David, about this Swedish king that I'd never heard of. I'm always glad to share these little stories, Neil. We do have a quiz today, and it's a Christmas quiz, a Christmas history quiz since tis the season. Tis the season. All right, our first question saint nicholas was born in the country that we now call what david which country was he born in was saint nicholas from turkey he was it's very appropriate for this podcast where we've just been talking about turkey saint nicholas according to legend was born in the heart of the roman empire in patera turkey all right our next one who was probably the first man to illuminate a christmas tree with candles To illuminate a
0: Christmas tree with candles. Well, I really don't know, but I do know that Queen Victoria and her husband Prince Albert were well known as early adopters of Christmas trees in England. So perhaps I'll guess Prince Albert.
1: That's a good guess, and it was probably his Germanic background that uh, was where he got the idea for the trees from and brought that from and of course Christmas trees originated in Germany the person who was probably the first to actually illuminate a Christmas tree with candles was actually Martin Luther so when he wasn't uh, nailing theses to church doors he came up with the idea of illuminating Christmas trees festive what day is a close second and sometimes surpasses Black Friday for the busiest brick and mortar shopping day of the year Huh. Well, if I had to think of
0: shopping days that might rival Black Friday, my guess would be Boxing Day.
1: That's a good guess, and this is a bit of a trick question. It's actually the last Saturday before Christmas, which is known as Super Saturday. Although Black Friday has traditionally been the biggest shopping day of the year, it seems like it has a bit of a contender in the Saturday before Christmas, and I'm guessing this year, with Christmas falling early in the week, That Saturday will be very busy. You want to get your shopping done before then. I am
0: one of the late shoppers who probably contributes to the Saturday
1: before Christmas becoming such a rush. I hope I don't see you at the mall. I hope I'm not anywhere near a mall that close to Christmas. (laughs) When did NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, start tracking Santa on Christmas Eve? Oh, I have read the
0: NORAD Santa track history site. It was in the
1: 1950s, definitely.
0: I'm going to guess 1956.
1: Oh, so close. I will give you credit for knowing that it was in the 1950s. That's pretty good uh, history knowledge there, David. It was actually 1955 that NORAD started tracking Santa, which of course they do to this day. Last question here to wrap up our quiz. We kiss under the mistletoe because of a Norse legend involving the goddess Frigg, who was the goddess of what? Ah,
0: if I know my Norse mythology, which I almost certainly don't, I believe she was the goddess of fertility.
1: Frigg was the goddess of foresight and wisdom. In Norse mythology, when her son Balder dies, Frigg's tears turn the mistletoe plants berries white and she uses them to revive her son and after that proclaims that she will kiss anyone under the plant. And that started the kissing under the mistletoe tradition which was popularized in Victorian England and of course continues to this day. So. Good job on the quiz, David. I think we should wish everyone a Merry Christmas and uh, hope you get out there and kiss somebody under a mistletoe. Merry Christmas, everybody. If you want to contact us online, our website is obrother.ca. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, our handle is at whenartthou, and our email is obrotherwhenartthou@outlook.com. at outlook.com. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Joya Noel, Feliz Navidad!